Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Again, joined by Sayer Payne. Sayer is a business litigation attorney out of Cincinnati, Ohio, and he's pretty knowledgeable about the topic we're going to dive into today, the Bataan Death March. All right, today we are going to talk about the Bataan Death March. And joining us again is Sayer Payne. Sayer, thanks for jumping on. Glad to be here. All right, so the Bataan Death March took place during World War II in the Pacific Theater um, in the Philippine Islands in 1942. And I think it makes sense to back it up a little bit to kind of provide some context there before we dive into the, the actual event. So World War II kicks off in, on December 7, 1941, when Japanese forces attack stationed at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. Uh, declaration of war would, would soon follow. And just like that, the United States enters World War II um, with Japan. On December 8th, so you know, less than 24 hours later, or one day later, Japanese forces land on a Philippine island and begin their invasion of the Philippines, where there are about 31 American forces, excuse me, 31,000 American forces stationed. So the Philippines is 7,600 islands. So it's, it's, they landed on a island up up north in an area called Luzon um, and began moving south towards Manila. But it's a huge grouping of islands in the, uh, in the South Pacific. So there are 31,000 Americans throughout the islands tasked with defending them, working with our Filipino allies, and they were considered kind of the easternmost range of American forces as the war kicked off. Now, it's a tough spot to be in. They are in the, you know, today when we look at it, of course the Philippines were going to fall. Hawaii was something like 4,500 miles away from Japan, and they launched this decimating attack on Pearl Harbor. The Philippines are a third of that. They're like 1,500 miles from Japan and even closer to China, where Japan is just moving right across. So in retrospect, it was coming. The, the, Philippi- the, uh, the Imperial Army and Navy was definitely going to um, have a shot at the Philippines and, and – we're probably going to be able to outnumber American forces there well, before we think, go any further there. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to chime in. If you think about it, the whole point of Pearl Harbor was for the subsequent invasion into the Philippines because Pearl Harbor was the reason they hit Pearl Harbor was because the United States already were staging all of their naval might in our westernmost kind of safe area being Hawaii. Because we have a lot of naval units in, like, California there on the West Coast. Well, they all kind of linked up there, sort of on standby. And so to go, where would they be going? They'd be going to the Pacific, um, to where, obviously, Japanese are posted up. And um, so now you have the preparatory attack. All the backup, if they would have done Philippines first, then obviously U.S. would have sent all the backup. That would have been the trigger point to send the naval fleet over. Well they destroyed the naval fleet first or as much of it as they could. And then did the land invasion right afterwards 
to get the foothold into the Philippines already in their home base where you mentioned Japan is located, where they've already got um, a footprint in China. They're trying to secure that uh, foothold into Asia and sort of dominate a whole section of it. And that's a good point with Hawaii. I mean, we're going to come back to that here shortly where they, they kind of took our knees out with the Pacific fleet um, during the attack at Pearl Harbor. So these 31,000 in the Philippines are, you know, what chance do 31,000 have? And that includes a lot of uh, Filipinos that are serving alongside U.S. forces. So kind of the, the overall defense of the islands, what chance do 31,000 have if Japan strikes? And the answer is not much of one, but the idea had always been they just have to hold out. They don't have to fully repel Japanese forces indefinitely. They just have to hold on until U.S. forces can get there. So that's kind of the path it takes with General Douglas MacArthur on the island um, leading the defense for a period of time. And the U.S. forces start to just fall back and fall back and fall back until they are in an area known as the Bataan Peninsula. It's a uh, little – if you're looking at Luzon, one of the, uh, the kind of the major northernmost island, Manila is in the south, and the Bataan, Bataan Peninsula sticks out into Manila Bay. The idea of falling back to this peninsula was at this point, once you get back here, U.S. forces would, would be able to arrive and would, would start to reinforce, and you could counterattack. For, gosh, I mean, it was, I think, five months U.S. forces moved back, U.S. and Filipino forces. I'm going to keep saying U.S., but, you know, certainly both fought a, a – kept moving back and held that line and kind of held their perimeter and, and just – they didn't have a chance. The – you know, really the first major U.S. ground action in World War II would be Guadalcanal in August, and that was a – I mean, lucky to be able to pull that off in August – U.S. forces are going to surrender in the Philippines in, in uh, let's see, April. So they're months away from any chance of reinforcements coming from the United States. So well, yeah. what do you there? The, I was yeah. going to say that with the Philippines, that's a place unlike – so the land invasions and all of that with the Pacific that came later in the summer is totally different in the Philippines because the Philippines armies had a base, a presence – since you know like the 1900 time frame so there was mm-hmm. always a, a u.s contingent at that at that area it wasn't necessarily a hold the line we probably should have be- beefed it up if we were beefing up our pacific fleet like that knowing the war is heading there it's interesting we wouldn't have beefed up our really only foothold in that region of the world that's an interesting thought why we didn't do that but um there there was yeah just small you, you know just like we have Units kind of everywhere. We did have a contingent there. And one of the, I think like the famous unit that you hear about is the New Mexico National Guard. They, you know, they had like 1,500 people there. That was a deployment for them. So I don't know. It just, to me, it seems like it was more of just a strategic just position of just having a U.S. presence than having this huge contingent ready to fight this huge, this Japanese horde coming at them with all these resources, logistics, when the Philippines, the U.S. had what they had. They really didn't have, I mean, they were thousands of miles from really a friendly unit. This is totally different than 
the European or even North African theater where you all have all these different channels of logistics that you can use. That doesn't really exist here. That's a good point. And, and something to note here on the surrender on April 9th, 1942, General John Wainwright is the one that, that offered the American and Filipino surrender. And he was criticized for a long time. Um, I think even after the war, I don't, I don't think this mm-hmm. was um, just a little, the idea of how dare you give up, how dare you surrender. But realistically, um, you know, U.S. forces months away from arriving and in, in terms of reinforcements. And he probably saved, I mean, thousands of lives at right. least. Well, they said uh, at the time of surrender, I think one third were already sort of casualties from malnourishment already. They were sort of sickened. Um, and then, you know, you said General Wainwright. This is the important to note story where um, MacArthur was called away. So he was in charge of the Philippines. And then as it started to go downhill and look like a lost cause, Roosevelt withdrew MacArthur to Australia mm-hmm. to then train up that force that would one day sort of liberate. But that took, you know, a couple more years for that to happen. But this is this is that when MacArthur promises to come back or whatever, this is where it all fits. So Wainwright surrenders on, on April 9th. And at that point, the Japanese find themselves in control of and responsible for about 70,000, 70,000 prisoners of war, both Filipino and American. And so begins the Bataan Death March. So the Japanese have to move the Americans, move their prisoners. I keep saying Americans, but um, they, they actually, the Americans only made up a smaller portion of this than Filipinos. But um, I'll, I'll try to transition to saying prisoners more often here. The Japanese have to move the prisoners to camps that are further north. And the camps that they're trying to get them to are about 70, 65, 70 miles away. The subsequent march would be known as the Bataan Death March. It ends up taking, what do we have to say, about six days? Yeah. Yep. Six days through, through hell. It's north of 100 degrees. Soldiers are, are stripped of, say that again? Humid, because we're in the Philippines here. Yep. Direct sun beating down, and they're deprived of water, deprived of food. Well, stripped the direct of any personal sun, possessions. you mentioned the direct sun. That was a, you have to think with Japanese culture, especially back then, they viewed surrendering as like one of the worst things you could ever do. So you were worse than dead to them. Um, you're supposed to die. You should never give up. And so they just, they didn't view the, they were subhuman and they treated them as such. And so when you said the full sun, that was one of their um, really tortures that they would do for prisoners. They would just make them stand at attention in the, in this 110 degree sun. And they haven't had water for days. They're not allowed to drink it. They're drinking cesspools that they can find alongside the road and getting dysentery as a result of that. And then they're standing up in this full sun. Anybody who falls out gets from heat exhaustion or any sort of exhaustion, they also get executed. Anybody who takes a knee gets executed. 
anybody who gets dysentery and can't keep up, they get executed. Um, and everybody knew this. They had to keep moving or else they were dead. I think there's something worth adding there. You made me think of it when you said everybody knows this. Everybody knows this quickly. They learn this quickly um, as the march begins. There's an account of, of soldiers being shot right away because they had Japanese possessions on their person. And, and the Japanese took that as, oh, you, you stripped this off one of our, our soldiers. Um, bam, executed. And so, so the Americans and the Filipinos are learning quickly what, you know, what's happening here. But it's important to know that nobody knew what to expect before they were captured. Remember, the United States doesn't even get into Guadalcanal, the first major land action, for another four months. So we haven't had ground combat and prisoners of war taken by the Japanese yet in the Second World War. Today we can look back and say, I wouldn't want to surrender to that military at that time because we know what they ended up doing. When General Wainwright surrendered and when these troops massed and got ready to move to prisoner of war camps, they had no idea what this march would entail. There wasn't – I mean they, they kind of knew what had happened in China, but are those rumors? Is it propaganda? So it's, it's not as though at this point in the conflict it's well known what they're getting into, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. Well, it's just another interesting clash of cultures because the one I just described, that samurai culture, of it's called Bushido. You've got this Asian culture that you're fighting, a totally different people, versus what Wainwright just did, which is chivalry, the European way where you give your sword or whatever and you're treated with honor. So it's just completely different. And the U.S. was too ignorant or maybe even arrogant to know that Japanese, they were treating prisoners. I mean, this is what they did in Japan all through the 30s. So this wasn't just all of a sudden new behavior that they started. Uh, as soon as um, Pearl Harbor happened, they just invented this way of military conquest. They've been doing it for at least a decade, really. So, um but you're right, though, at the time, it's not like he knew that was going to happen. Should he have known? Probably. But I don't think they did. Or who knows? Maybe that's why they fought for so long. It's real hard to tell. It's just a terrible situation to be in, stranded like that. Because when they were, I mean, their closest ally was Australia, which was like 7,000 miles. I mean, they really were stranded. Something that comes to mind for me is they're moving the prisoners south and north. And there's a couple stops in here, but we'll... uh Eventually, they get to a train in an area called San Fernando, San Fernando, San Fernando. Either way, I'm sure I'm probably pronouncing that incorrectly, but we'll keep talking about the actual march here. Something that keeps coming to mind or the, the thought is a burden rather than responsibility. So it, it over and over again looks as though taking care of moving and, and caring for, if that term can even be used, the prisoner of war is, is viewed as a burden. Like they don't want to have to do it. They just, they're stuck mm -hmm. doing it. Um, right. And in turn, it, it behavior comes out. I mean, there's stories of what somebody gets shot just because they fall back a little bit. Um, well, people being bayoneted just because. Here's, here's the thing on the bayonet. A very um, sort of interesting, interesting thing. It, you know, Japan gets painted as this very sadistic World War II just animal coming at you with everything you know you got the kamikazes that you hear about and, and uh iwo jima guadalcanal all those stories and um it's not like everybody was like that you know 
these these guys were drafted, and um, what they would do is they some people were like that, and once they had the opportunity, they can uh, they love it. Okay, that's sure. Just, uh, other people though they weren't they weren't wired like that. Okay, well the Japanese would identify these let's call them soft people that didn't want to be there, that didn't have this natural propensity to violence the way others might have, given the opportunity, and they would line them all up, and they would take a prisoner and tie him you know to a post. They would paint and mark on their vitals so that you were to avoid that. And so they would give, instead of shooting someone where you just kill them like that, they would give the bayonet and try to keep them alive as long as possible so they could get as many of these soft people to stick a live uh, screaming prisoner. You know, and they would do that to kind of dehumanize and break them, keep them alive as long as possible, you know. And then uh, a lot of times they'd behead them. So that was a technique used throughout sort of the Japanese army at this time. Dan Carlin has a podcast out right now, a series covering the war in the Pacific. And there's a part that he goes into that, that I thought was really interesting around this, where it's, you know, we'll get into the repercussions for this treatment, right? This, this didn't go unnoticed, didn't go unpunished um, at a high level. But the question always arises of, of, is it, are these the rogue actors out there or, or is it ordered or what it is? And, and there's a comment or a thought around how it was ordered at a certain level because then the Japanese soldier wouldn't surrender to the Americans because they could expect the same treatment. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Oh, so yeah. if, they, if they murder, desecrate an American soldier, torture, all of those – and the Americans find out about it, they're more likely to do that, to, or at least the Japanese soldier thinks they're more likely to do that. So better not surrender. Almost like, like a real dark, you know, handcuffed to your cause kind of thing. Right. And again, fostering that culture of belief that those who do surrender are worse than dogs. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Some dark stuff. They, uh, yeah. They, they, they make it to a rail yard and get boarded into boxcars. It's 100 plus degrees, and they're, they're talking about 100 prisoners per boxcar. I mean, just stuffed. Stuffed is the, is the term. Um, the train eventually stops at an area called Capas, C-A-P-A-S. It's just a couple-hour train ride, and they – the prisoners get out and have to walk the final nine miles to an area called Camp O'Donnell. By the time they get to Camp O'Donnell, there would be, so again, about six days, about 65 miles all in. And in those six days, the estimates of Americans and Filipinos killed is nearly 20,000. About 18,000 of those are estimated to be Filipinos and over 600 Americans in a six-day stretch after they surrendered and were in the custody and protection of the Japanese victors. Now, I think the reason that the Bataan Death March is well-known maybe 
more well-known than others because you hear that and you, it's a, it's a big part of American history, big part of World War II history. Um, and then you dive into it and say, well, 650 Americans, 18,000 Filipinos, those are big numbers, but they don't really compare to some other battles. I mean, even when the U.S. forces go back to take the Philippines a few years later, they're going to lose 16,000. Okay. But, but the Bataan Death March, to me, holds, holds a uh, more prominent position in American history than the retaking of the Philippines even. And I think the reason for that is these were prisoners. And it also it lends into that confusion of who's the good guys, who's the bad guys, and how that World War II always seems to be that just war, right? Because it's like in Europe, you're fighting the Nazis, and then over here, you're fighting this type of treatment, where it really comes off as black and white, where since then, there's just been a lot of gray that you're just very muddy. No, it would be. Go well, I, I, the other thing I was thinking about mentioning also where it also fits in, that New Mexican National Guard, I mean, they are the ones who fired. The, these prisoners are the ones who fired the first shots of the war in the Pacific, physically in the Pacific. So this is what kicked it off. You know, I, I as we're kind of kind of nearing the wrap-up point here, I'm, I don't know the right way to say this. So I'll just dive into it. it. It doesn't necessarily have a happy ending. It just kind of has an ending. Um, Camp O'Donnell would be shut down. Many of the Filipino prisoners would be would return to their families. In, in the middle of the war, just a year or so later, most of the Americans would be transferred to a camp called, in uh, Cabanatuan which would be the site of another incredible story where U.S. Army Rangers went in and, and overran and, and um, rescued those prisoners of war. But, but many of the Americans were, were held prisoner for two and a half years. The Japanese leadership would be subject to war crimes, found guilty of war crimes for the treatment um, of the prisoners. A gentleman named General Hama, H-O-M-M-A, led the invasion of the Philippines and was found guilty um, and was executed for his, what was deemed uh, his responsibility for the treatment of, you know, what do we say, almost 20,000 prisoners that died under his unit's watch. Hmm. So I, I don't know that that's, right, it, far from a happy ending, it's an ending, or it's right. a, a, a piece of closure. You know, something well, that's interesting. Yeah, go ahead. The On that same note, right, it's the same thing that just happened this week or last week here in August, the 75th anniversary of the atomic bombs going off in Japan. It's an ending. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's one of many possible endings. It happens to be the ending, but um, 75 years ago. So it's, it's relevant today. Even people are still talking about it, obviously for obvious reasons. Well, dark time, dark time for the U.S. It, it, what I was going to say that's interesting is that it wasn't released publicly until January of 1944. The, you know, it's a different time. News didn't travel as fast as it does today. And who on that death march is going to call the New York Times and tell them about it? Hmm. Right? Everybody's dead or, or in a camp or 
is, is, is a Japanese soldier. So it, it took years for this to come out and it may never have, you know, if, if, you know, an interesting way to think about it is if the United States had lost the war, this story may never have come out. Right. That's a good point. They were on an Island. Literally, figuratively, everything. Mm-hmm. It's a dark one, though. I mean, I said it a couple yeah. times now. It's just, it's, uh, it's a, it's a story to to know. It's, it's, you know, we want to remember that and, and know what happened. But just for six days, holy cow, that's uh, that's a lot of, a lot of horror for six days. Right, war is hell. Well, anything else here, Sarah? Should we go ahead and wrap it on up? So we wrap it up. Um, oh, I was going to mention, um, if anybody is interested in sort of that era of early 20th century Japanese imperialism, I learned a lot. I read this book called Flyboys by James Bradley, same guy that wrote Flag of Our Fathers, that Iwo Jima, Flag Raising, Clint Eastwood, the movie. Um, the book is really interesting. I didn't know about any of that stuff. I read it when I was in high school at some point, and um, – I don't know. It, that's I got a lot of knowledge out of that. Cool. Thanks for adding that. We'll, uh, we'll put a link yeah. to that. Yeah, cool. we'll put a link to that in the notes then. Yeah. All right, man. Well, uh, that'll wrap up the Baton Death March today, and we'll uh, yeah appreciate you joining us there. Yeah. Anytime. All right, man. Yeah, we'll talk soon. Yep. See Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.